Chris, I'm going to warn you now, there's a chance my Wi-Fi may cut out or may Uh-oh. lose power or something. Strong winds coming through the area. Ooh, strong winds. Uh, strong winds are kind of tough. I mean, it's not as bad as like blankets of snow or hurricanes and things like that, though, right? Well, it's bad enough that we canceled school. It's the first time I've seen school get canceled for wind. I mean, we canceled it last night, like a day before it happened. Are they afraid of your kids getting blown away or how bad is it? I think it's one of those deals where it's like you have so many weather-related days a year and you've only burned a few of them. It's kind of like your PTO. You're getting to the end of the year. You're a little more liberal with how you spend that PTO. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 321 of Touchpoint. That is Chris Boyer. I am Reed Smith, keeping my head down. Well, I'm I'm safe inside. We actually have pretty good weather. The only thing they could close schools for nowadays, too much snow melt. I guess it's technically flooding or something. Well, we are back for yet another episode of Touchpoint. Uh, three, two, one. This is episode three, two, one. How about that? Thank you one and all for joining. Thanks for tuning in for yet another episode of Touchpoint. Uh, we certainly appreciate the support. Want to give a quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is where you can go to learn more about this show, the episodes, the topics we cover, uh, and sign up for the TPS report. You'll notice that up in the top navigation. If you click, all we need is your name, email address, uh, nothing crazy, uh, no, no, uh, no PII. Well, I guess that is kind of PII, isn't it? But anyway, uh, we're not going to do anything with it. We're not a health provider. So all we're going to do with it is send you an email every Monday with five articles to start your week. So hopefully that is something of value, a little value add uh, as you get started on a Monday morning. So we'll pause for a second. Touchpoint.health is a website. Jump over there on whichever electronic device you're on. Sign up for the TPS report and then join us back for the rest of the episode. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. It's funny how you said like whatever electronic device you're on, chances are 
that if you're listening in here, you're not only uh, holding an electronic device, you might even be looking at an electronic device or interacting with an electronic device. I think the big point here, Reed, is that digital is now ubiquitous in our lives now. It's all over. Digital tools, digital things, smartphones, computers, it's all over. It just is the way we live our lives. Television is not what it used to be. The phone is not what it used to be. Our radio is not what it used to be. You know, like everything is is connected now. It's all intertwined. It's all running out of the same, you know, brain, if you will. So yeah, I mean everything we do, including our health, which is what we're gonna talk a little bit about today. The concept of digital health, when you and I first got into the space many, many, many years ago, was sort of small, right? It wasn't really as big and prominent as it is today. You know, and as we look at it, digital health has integrated into a lot of things that we do and a lot of ways that we interact with our organizations. And it makes sense, at least from my perspective as I think about it, because one of the things is that it's integrated and therefore it makes it so easy for us to access. And access care, accessing care is probably one of the most important things that everybody wants, right? We want to have better ways to interact with our care through digital. What was the first like connected like health device? That you had, do do you know? It was a pedometer that would transmit to a (laughs) website for a fitness challenge. Yeah, I was trying to kind of think through this. I mean, I had a Fitbit, but do you remember the Nike Fuel Band? Yeah, yeah. They launched it at South by Southwest, and this was one of the first few years that I was involved at South by with the kind of health and wellness track or whatever. And I remember it being, I mean, it was huge. I mean, a huge deal. This was pre-Lance Armstrong Oprah interview. So Livestrong was still blowing and going, and they were like part of this big announcement thing. And uh, so that had to have been 2011, 2012, somewhere in there maybe. But, you know, I look back at those things, like those initial Fitbits and the fuel band and, and stuff like that. And, I mean, just kind of ahead of its time maybe. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I remember the fuel band. It looked really cool. You couldn't really see anything because it was just like lit up, right? And it would transmit to to an app or something, right? But that's kind of the early stages of like wearables, so to speak. I mean, wearables have been around for a long time, meaning medical devices that are connected to something that would collect that data. And then you'd probably go into into the doctor's office and sync that up, like plug it into their computer and they would download the data and stuff like that. But what we're talking about is truly like through Wi-Fi, that's a consumer oriented digital health application. Yeah. And like, why are these things important? I mean, because we, we care about this data. Some of us do, right? Certainly if you're dealing with a chronic condition or a second kind of health condition, that's very important to you. And then there's also a certain subset of people that are very much focused on their health, right? Maintaining good, healthy behaviors. So they like the benefits of an Apple Watch and things like that. And I think it's somewhat the gamification too, right? Like with the Apple Watch, you're trying to close these rings, you know, so you get people that are hyper-focused on like, I've got to get these rings closed, you know, or what's my sleep score, you know, and stuff like that. I think a lot of these companies have done a good job of trying to make it 
I don't know, an activity that you feel like you need to complete, I guess. I mean, Peloton did a great job, you know, with their bike and treadmill and those types of things. With the way the classes are done, there's a competitive element to it. But, Reed, you're also kind of underestimating the, the fact that it's so convenient to have digital health devices, right? Think about the rise of telemedicine through the pandemic. That, that, conven- that really was adopted because of convenience, you now look. You can go in person. So, but look, we have these telemedicine ways to connect with your doctor. That's so easy for people to do, and that kind of led to that rise of telemedicine. Yeah, and I mean, maybe convenience, but also, I'm not sure you're exactly opting in anymore. Yeah, like you're not buying a Fitbit, like a Fitbit or a my Nike Fuel Band, and those. They did a certain like you bought those because that's what it did. Well, now the health tracking, if you will, is just a part of everything else you own. You know what I'm saying? Like it's part of your phone. It's a part of your watch. Like you're not buying exclusively a device to track X, Y, and Z, unless you're buying like a blood pressure cuff or a scale or something like that, maybe, I Mm -hmm. guess. But I think that's another part of it. It's just the... It's become interwoven in, in all parts of our lives, just like, you know, kind of technology has over the years. Health technology now has. Exactly, which leads us to one of the first articles we're going to kind of talk about and reference, which is an article from MorningConsult.com uh, that indicates that the public's use of health apps and wearables have increased recently, but digital health still has some room to grow. One of the things they point out, one of the sets they point out here is that Two in five U.S. adults are now using some kind of health app, which is an increase of six percentage points since the late 2018. That's a lot. And then the amount of Americans overall who said they use wearables is up 35%, which is an eight-point jump from the same period. So, I mean, most people, and probably most people that those that are listening to this show know, are connected because I'm sure there are pockets. I mean, we talk about health equity and, and things like that or where broadband access exists, you know, et cetera. But if you look at, you know, most of us that live in these major metropolitan areas and things like that, I, I would guess the majority of the people you know are, have a wearable. I mean, just i.e. they have an Apple Watch on, you know, or whatever. And even more so, the same study that will reference, click the show notes, you could see the study in here. At least half of those people that have some kind of health app or wearable, they use them on a daily basis, every day. Yeah. It's, it's really ingrained in our lives. It is ingrained. Now, they do call out in here that, you know, despite the increased usage, health apps and wearables did not seem the same uh, pandemic boost as virtual care. Mm. I'm wondering, though... And again, we'll kind of go through the rest of the state, but I mean, how much of that is just there was that much more opportunity to boost virtual care versus the already utilized, you know, wearable? Yeah, there's even, uh, they quote a researcher from Rock Health, Adriana Krasinanski, who said that wearables and apps were not changes dramatically because there were more factors at play than just the pandemic for wearables and apps. Telehealth was the only way, right, for patients to get care. But for wearables and apps, it wasn't like this is the only way you could track your steps now, right? Those things, it, they, it wasn't like an increased pressure to use it. So maybe that kind of accounts for that. Well, again, in here, amongst U.S. adults, 
three and four said exercise or heart rate monitoring was the primary reason, you know, followed by tracking their sleep, weight, diet, et cetera. Well, just looking at that, the pandemic doesn't necessarily impact that. I, maybe you had a little more time and so you exercised more frequently or something like that. But I'm guessing people that were monitoring their heart rate pre-pandemic, like we didn't have a bunch of people in the pandemic go, well, I guess I'll start monitoring my heart rate now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there, there wasn't the same trigger as it was of you needed it if you were going to see a clinician. That's not to say, and this article uh, kind of sums it up, it says that these devices are really useful. And for those people who do use them, 86% said it's very or somewhat effective in helping them reach their goals. But this is really more of a uh, changing people behavior type of op- uh, adoption uh, concern, right? Um, they're still very costly. And that's part of the reason there's a barrier to that care, to using these wearables and devices and things. Even if you're under insurance, that they're costly. I think there are other reasons why there hasn't been such a significant growth in digital health solutions. And we're going to address that after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right. So lots of people wearing devices. They have for a long time, have found it useful, tracking sleep, exercise, heart rate, you know, all, all that kind of fun stuff. Saw an increase in virtual care through the pandemic. Obviously, we talked ad nauseum about that. But we've got an interesting article here from our friends over at insiderintelligence.com called Consumers' High Use of Digital Health Tools Doesn't Match Their Data Privacy Concerns. I knew privacy would find its way into here. Yeah. We even talked about it at the beginning, right? Like we're, we're not even opting into things now. So suddenly everybody can have access to our health data. That is a concern. I think they're basing this on a Rock Health study from 2022 called the Digital Health Consumer Adoption Survey, where they surveyed more than 8,000 U.S. adults. What did they find, Reed? The punchline here is that you know consumers are hesitant to share their medical data with technology companies. That's the underscoring uh, point, I guess. Um, you know, a sub bullet of that: seventy percent of consumers will share their health information, such as their medical history, uh, records, labs, you know, et cetera, physical activity, even uh, with their clinicians. So it's not about you know sharing your information with your doctor. It's just they don't want it 
and again, I'm kind of inferring some of this. They don't want it to travel through a health tech company to get to the clinician or just directly with a health tech company. Yeah, well, this same survey did actually illustrate that. They said fewer consumers are willing to share this type of data with health tech companies, 15%, and tech players outside of healthcare, 7%. Yeah, nobody wants to give those people that. Yeah, and it's again, it's back to privacy and trust. Can we trust these people? And that's an interesting kind of perspective. And let me share a little a personal anecdote, Reed. I'm working right now. I'm I am actually um, utilizing not only a continuous glucose monitor. I'm I now have an insulin pump, right? That I'm using, and in order to set up the the insulin pump. I had to work with a third-party company that's not my doctor to train me and educate me on how to use it, and they input the data into the pump so that it was all programmed and ready to go. Now, they were a medical device company, but even using a third party in this sort of relationship caused me a little bit of unease. Because I'm like, well, what if they get it wrong? And by the way, what are they doing now with my data? It was one of those things in the back of my mind that my spidey sense tingled a little bit. Now, I get it. They're a medical device company. They're not like Google or Meta, for example, right? Which are really the challenges here. Or, you know, or other third-party companies like Amazon or Walmart or whomever. Those kinds of companies, there's a different layer of trust I think we have depending on who and where we're sharing our data with. This is kind of where the rub comes in, right? 79%, they say in here, of U.S. adults have used a mobile health app in the last year, and 39% use wearables that have health tracking capabilities. But they don't want to share it with a tech company. But we're all using the tech company's devices. (laughs) If you want to or not, you are. Yeah, and and even it's not like they're just passively. Although you know, sometimes you can passively use these things. It's passively collecting your information. Some of them are actively requiring inputting data about your weight loss, your moods, your blood pressure, your medications, etc. They don't trust them, but they're willingly putting that information in. Why do you think that is occurring, Reed? I think, and they caught here a little bit, and I, and I don't disagree. I think the concern is as much security, privacy-related things we've seen in the news. It's like, hey, I'm guessing you would have a similar survey with similar data points, and we could probably Google around and find something relative to financial information, You know, entering your financial information into apps, if you will, credit cards, et cetera. Probably makes people uneasy because of data breaches and different things that they've seen. And so it's easy to say like, no, I don't, I don't really like this idea. Matter of fact, they say in here, 52% of health app users say they're very or somewhat concerned about their privacy. Well, and those are people that are currently using them too. So I think the parallel here is if you're not using them, you're probably a little bit more cautious about if you're concerned about data security. But even those that are using them, more than half, are very or somewhat concerned. Here I am, I'm concerned, and I've actually had conversations with colleagues. I'm on Fitbit, which is now owned by Google. Uh-oh, yeah, get out. And they're like, well, I really like my Fitbit, but now that Google acquired it, what are they going to be doing with my health data? This is a concern. Just, just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about ungoogling, and so you should probably... I got to take off my Fitbit now. 
<laughs> you should un-Google. <laughs> well, it's not just digital health devices that are a concern. And so why don't we, after this break, read, why don't we come back and talk a little bit about a recent Pew Research study that illustrates the distress goes a little bit further in uh, than just a digital health device and actually goes into digital entirely. And we'll do that right after this break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, finally, somewhat analogous to this conversation, we talked a lot about wearables and kind of health tech, something along those lines, right, which is kind of the evolving way that we think about the healthcare space and the consumer. Pew Research Center, which I really enjoy all the content they put out. I, I like their studies and their findings. It's, it's super useful stuff. Here just recently, uh, they put out a report, and the, the big headline here is 60% of Americans would be uncomfortable with basically their provider relying on AI in their own health care setting. But the sub line is, yet many see promise for AI to help issues of bias in medical care. Oh, no. so like, what does that tell you? It's like, you know, well, I don't know that I'm, I don't want to use it on me, but I do think it's good. Yeah. So six in 10 are uncomfortable about their healthcare provider using AI specifically to diagnose disease and recommend treatments. But on the flip side, a large share of Americans think the use of AI in health and medicine would reduce rather than increase the number of mistakes made by healthcare providers. <laughs> that runs counter in my mind, those two things. <laughs> I am super uncomfortable, but I do think it's good. It's like, uh, okay, all right. In here, they talk about the fact that there is a wide concern about AI's potential impact on the personal connection between a patient and a healthcare provider. I think that is kind of interesting. So 57% say that the use of AI to do things like diagnose disease, recommend treatments would make the provider-patient relationship worse. I, I get that. I mean, you, you don't want to show up at a doctor's office and you know talk to like a chat bot instead of the doctor. I think we also kind of distrust, um, you know, like chat, uh, like the AI machines, like our previous episode about chat GPT, where we, we kind of distrust the output. We, we do want to have a human person to interact with that we could talk about and that can actually understand our empathy and our feelings as well. I get that. It's There's another concern too, right? Yeah, we always talk about the speed of healthcare, right? Especially in our world, it's not exactly the fastest thing in, in the world. But one call out in this article is that Americans are more concerned that healthcare providers will adopt AI technologies too fast rather than too slowly. I think that's a 
good concern. That's one that I share too. But I, I guess what they're saying is, is they're just going to spring to it. Oh, look, this is this new Bing search engine where I can use AI and or I can use chat GPT to do diagnosis on people and just do it without validating it. I, I think that's a concern. I would see that. What it- The minority, you know, a quarter of these folks are saying that it won't be quick enough, right? This can, we're going to move too slow and miss opportunities. So I think you know, there's got to be a, a happy medium here. I mean, obviously we don't want it. We don't want algorithms diagnosing patients without any real oversight and getting things wrong or missing things. However, not moving fast enough, there are use cases for AI, machine learning, and things like that for not second opinions, but to relook at scans, for example. So like you, you come in and you have a scan for one reason. They're not looking for lung nodules, right? They're, you got a CT for a whole different reason. Mm-hmm. Well, how could we use artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, these algorithms to go review all of these charts and these records to look for those types of things, those secondary diagnoses that you were not there for? So I do, I do think there is, it's like, it's not just an all or nothing, you know, kind of scenario, right? Yeah. And it's not, by the way, this is not a, a straight wash over the entire American population. Pew does a really good job of kind of breaking out their, you know, the different demographics or the different segments of people. I found some, some, I'm going to call it a couple of highlights about those that distrust AI as opposed to those that, that do like AI. Among men, 46% say they would be comfortable with the use of AI in their own healthcare to do things like diagnose and recommend treatments. 54% say they're uncomfortable. Women... 33% are comfortable as opposed to 66% that are uncomfortable. When you look over the age bands, right, um, 18 to 19 versus 30 to 49, 50 to 64, even 65 plus, it, the mi- minority is on thinking it's favorable, but there's not much of a difference of those who find it to be unfavorable. 18 to 29 year olds, 56% say it's somewhat uncomfortable. 30 to 49-year-olds, it's 57%. And then you go up to like the 50-plus people, and it's 64%. So this isn't skew towards the younger people being more comfortable. There is a slight skew, though, men versus women. Younger adults, men, we're good with it. Just roll out. Just let's roll with the – no, I'm kidding. But there are, like you said, the, the age disparity, there's not a huge swing in the percentages here. But certainly people that are younger and have grown up not knowing any different, probably. Uh, you know, I'm talking more technology broadly, not necessarily AI, uh, obviously have a higher level of comfort. But even people that, you know, have more income and more education, um, meaning grad, post-grad education and things like that. Uh, also more comfortable. Okay, so one of the last benefits that Pew calls out in this study, which is really interesting, is about bias in healthcare. Bias based on race and ethnicity. And in general, the studies found that Americans are more optimistic than pessimistic about AI's potential positive impact on the issue. Those that see a problem with bias based on race or ethnicity in medicine, 51% think that relying on AI would make this issue better. 
That is really interesting, right? There's a number of people that feel like there is an issue around bias and the fact that a formula, for lack of a better word, negates some of that. I don't know. I got to think through that, but that is an interesting, interesting finding. But we've talked about the the fact that AI can become biased, right? Depending on what data you feed into it. Absolutely. Still, you know, there is this sort of perception that if you're using artificial intelligence, which is, you know, I guess the perception is it's based on level accurate data analysis, the 36% of those people who said it's, it's, it will get better, bias will get better using AI, they say it's because human bias is much more significant than computer bias. AI bias is neutral. Human bias is very much more overarching kind of concern here. This study is pretty pretty cool. It's got a lot of data in here. It goes into like the use in uh, in AI and cancer screening and other different types of medical conditions. You know, we definitely link to the show notes, and you we would encourage you all to kind of take a look in here. But I think the one thing that kind of jumps out at me, Reed, is this sort of parallel approach towards people's perception of using digital digital health solutions. And in this particular last study that we were looking at, AI, as there are benefits and there are also negatives associated with it. And I think we are, we're left with a complex answer is that, are we ready for digital's use in healthcare? Sure. <laughs> Why not? It's kind of my title or my job. Um, <laughs> You know, this is something obviously we need to continue to look at and and consider as we try to decide, you know, what does um, AI look like for the work that we're involved in, right? But I do think this is not going to go away and will continue to be a part of what we do as a role and as uh, that we have, you and I have, but also as an industry, right? Yeah. And as with everything else, the utilization of digital, digital health, digital health apps, AI, whatever, in healthcare, it's going to evolve and it's going to shift and pivot. At this point in time when we're recording this, I think the in general, there's kind of a mixed bag when it comes to patients and potential patients. Maybe we should pick up this episode in about five years and see, you know, has that <laughs> shifted? Has the per- consumer perception shifted? With that, Reed, let's uh, take one last break and then we'll come back to close out the show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right. It's a good episode. Uh, interesting stuff. I know we've talked a lot about AI. We've talked a lot about health tech, things like that. Um, but it's just more of the way the industry is moving, the way we're centering around the consumer. Um, just it's just, a, it's just different than it was 20 some odd years ago. Are we ready for it or are we not? And I think that we as consumers have to 
make some of those decisions. I have a feeling, though, like I said, in five years, we're going to be fine. All right. Well, a couple of last plugs. Touchpoint.health is the website. TPS Report is an email that comes out every Monday morning with a few articles to start your week. Uh, So go sign up for that. And I hope we see you in Austin here in... About a month. A little over a month. Six weeks, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Uh, For the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit, we'd love to know if you're going to be there. Reach out and let us know. I'd love to connect. And uh, a couple of recommendations to wrap up the week. What do you got? Reed, I'm going to recommend a show um, my wife and I watched the first season of on Apple TV. It's a kind of a crime drama show called Truth Be Told. It stars sure. Octavia, Octavia Spencer, uh, Kate Hudson. In the first season, Aaron Paul from uh, Breaking Bad is in it. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. So let me tell you a little bit about what this is. Octavia Spencer, she plays a character who used to be a, a reporter, and now she's a podcaster. Okay, so you got me right there. She's a podcaster. Uh-oh. And she's revisiting a murder case that she covered as a news journalist, a new podcast that she's created. And uh, is learning about the real truth. And she thinks she's made some mistakes in her original reporting. And so she's out to seek the truth. It's really interesting. The first season was really good. Kind of very much like a true crime drama show, right? Very much drama driven. Her character is Poppy Parnell, by the way. That's her name. She's re-interviewing people. Just trying to figure out the, the real life you know, story behind it. The whole first season was captivating. We watched it all the way through, straight through. It was really good. Of course, the whole time, though, something that I I found to be really interesting as a podcaster myself, the premise was that she would do some research, some investigative research, and then record a podcast episode, and then release the episode, and then do more investigative research. So based on what she's saying in the podcast kind of influenced the events that are happening in real life. And the whole time I was thinking that must be an editorial nightmare read to think that like, what if I don't get enough material this week to record my very next episode that's due next Wednesday or whatever. Nonetheless, I think it's a really good, um, fun crime drama. And I will say that season one was one of three seasons that are out there. The third season I think is currently running. So I'm looking forward to to watching uh, uh, seasons two and seasons three. Truth Be Told on Apple TV. That's my recommendation. Nice. I like it. I like it. Well, I am also going to recommend a Netflix show called Full Swing. Uh, It's a docu-series. So those that like the F1 series on Netflix, it's been real popular. And I think it's a couple of seasons in. Uh, They've done a very similar one around the PGA Tour, professional golf. So follows golfers on and off the course, you know, et cetera. Really interesting. I think there's about eight, I think there's eight episodes maybe in the first season. It's got really high uh, on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb, et cetera. But uh, if you like golf, and actually my wife really has enjoyed it, and she doesn't care anything about golf necessarily. It's cool. It's, it's well done. Uh, it's kind of interesting. And uh, for those that like a docu-series, uh, it's a good one to check out. So anyway, it's on Netflix. Season one is up. Uh, it's called Full Full Swing. Awesome. Awesome. 
All right. Well, there it is, folks. Another week in the books. Forward to uh, next week, but also look forward to seeing people here in a few weeks in Austin. So again, reach out. We'd love to know if you're going to make it. If you've got ideas for the show, people who should come on, topics we should cover, et cetera, reach out and let us know that as well. So LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to track us down. Pretty straightforward. There are links over on touchpoint.health if you cannot find us. So for Chris Boyer, Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.